following contains strong language, violence, and nudity. It is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. Welcome to Spawnometer, number 31, covering a story by Todd McFarlane and Greg Capullo. No special thanks this time. It's all our, our regular guys. The story is called Homecoming. It's dedicated to Tom Palmer. Do you know who that is? Uh, wait, Tom Palmer. Um, hold on, Tom Palmer. Addicted to love? <laughs> Robert Palmer. Oh, my bad. Uh, no, Tom, Palmer, Tom Palmer, he was one of the more famous Marvel inkers of the Bronze Age. In particular, he did a lot of inking over John Buscema and Gene Colan. Definitely one of the best inkers Marvel had. Stepped up the game of pretty much every penciler he worked with. By the 90s, he was getting a little older and his stuff was kind of rough. He, they got had him inking Mike Deodato and he did his run on Avengers. And to some degree, I felt like he marred it. But on the other hand, there were so many people claiming to be Mike Deodato they were coming out of Glasshouse Studios that probably weren't because he had done the whole Neil Adams thing where he trained a bunch of guys to draw like him that it might have been that they were only getting like loose pencils for the Avengers and Tom Palmer was to finish him I did feel like we got a little bit robbed of that prime Mike Deodato experience on Avengers because of the Tom Palmer inks but still that doesn't minimize what an incredible inquiry was particularly his work over Bushima in the 80s when they were using a lot of zip tones and stuff really awesome and his son went on to write for Wizard Magazine he had an article where he covered like independent comics and stuff. I don't know what particular influence Tom Palmer had over Todd McFarlane's life. It might have been a simple matter of him being one of the artists who didn't go to Image that at least gave well wishes and wasn't all spiteful and shit, but that's who he was dedicated to. And then the cover was uh, the image of anti-Spawn's face in close-up reflecting in his metal portions of his mask, Spawn cowering, and there's all this necroplasm splashing around. What'd you think of the cover? Oh, great, dude. I like the Redeemer. Yeah, yeah, and and, I I guess they call him anti-Spawn throughout the previous stories, and this is where he actually... When he was Jason, they called him anti-spawn. Now they're calling him Redeemer. Right. The angels, when they're making him, mention that he's their Redeemer. And then later on in the issue, he insists on being referred to as Redeemer. So I like the whole anti-spawn thing, but you wouldn't want to do that permanently. He needs to have his own name. Yeah, no, no. I would say your name gives you purpose. Nominative it's determinism. So, right, Basically meaning down. that your calm name... Calm down, Mr. Peabody. Calm down. <laughs> right. Up your, your name helps to guide the person you're going to become. There's this argument well, that well, whatever you, you get named is going to help to shape who you are because of the perceptions of what that name means to people when they meet you essentially well this one they definitely hit the, the nose or bring around the nose where the character they pick to be the redeemer is actually trying to redeem himself they and we'll get into that more once we get into the story but definitely yeah. i agree with you i like the cover it's pretty cool so the issue was released on may 18th 1995 this was the same month we saw wonder woman number 100 it's a shame that george Press never made it over to image we had the launch of sovereign seven number one which is another instance where you got a guy who pussyfooted around with image in the early days but ultimately ended up doing his creator own series at DC Comics. You've got the Punisher line getting canceled. They had a crossover arc called Countdown that's supposed to lead to his suicide where they ripped off Vigilante's number 50 ending. This is the month where they canceled all the Punisher titles after nine years of him reigning in comics. And as far as Image goes, it was a notable month because you had Wildstorm Rising, one of the big crossovers, maybe the first big crossover that Wildstorm ever did. You've got the final issue of the ongoing Shadowhawk series coming out this month. And I think it's especially notable that you have the launch 
of Evangeline over at Maximum because I would argue that she is, if not the, she's definitely in the top two characters that launched out of Maximum, probably helped to establish Maximum Press. We're just a few months away from Rob Liefeld leaving Image. Now that he's firming up the ground of his next home, we're seeing that the transition is going to come soon. Okay. All right. So we got Spawn being reintroduced to New York. We see the old Twin Towers as he's showing up. His cape is still in a uh, hibernetic state where it's not really reacting. He's just It's stringy behind him. It doesn't have that luscious curls that is always spinning around him. He's heading back to his alley, which we see Bootsy and another guy kind of hanging out there. It's the guy that he reanimated. I can't remember his name. He gets home on the train and there's like 50 people oh, yeah, that's hobos coming off of this train. People jump off the train. That's yeah, right. That's a lot of damn hobos, man. Yeah. But there's something we haven't been. And not one of, of them had a stick with a sack on it. I was really disappointed. <laughs> right. That one's got like boils all over his face and shit, though. It's, not, it's like he's been through the Black Plague or some shit. But I do like that shot of the Twin Towers because even though Spawn hasn't been gone from New York for very long, you definitely get that sense of homecoming by seeing that night sky and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Twin Towers back in the day definitely told you you were in New York. And I also like the part where he's running across the rooftops because it's a nice, beefy Capullo Spawn from his earlier style before he gets assimilated by that McFarlane style and makes him all lanky and shit. So I, I like seeing that version of Spawn again. He runs into Bootsy and Be- Billy and uh, Bootsy's depressed because he put his boots up on uh, Spawn's throne as almost like they did a memorial for him because they hadn't seen him in a long time and he's telling Billy how he misses Boots and then Spawn, very out of character, jumps out and says boo. Yeah, well, there's a lot of him being out of character here too because the, he's really palling around with these guys as well. Yeah, which was really weird because I'm so used to like Get emo. Get away from emo me. Spawn. I'm sorry. You know, the Smiths are playing in the background while he's cutting himself because he's sad and he's What's like the black boo and he's hugging him and like come here buddies. I'm like, I remember reading it I was like, was this a fill-in writer like that maybe didn't read a lot of Spawn and just, it just felt really weird. <laughs> so, Did I like them showing him actually having a relationship with these guys because it never makes sense to me because of how fucked up and abusive the relationship is why these guys would give a shit about him yeah. and I also really love that Billy's got that like rosacea on his head to show where the, the bullets had gone through and he yeah. I, I think it was especially necessary in this episode since it's going to play into it but I, I really like that and it makes him much more distinctive so we're introduced to the new guardian of earth from heaven Raphael I mean mm, yeah she, you can see she, uh, she looks this, like your snobby New York type she looks like a skank <laughs> You know, let's be honest. She's dressing like a 20-something hooker, but the the lines say more like pushing 60. And she's got that weird hair that like goes into a swirl, like an upward swirl. I don't know where they were going with this. In the Golden Girls, which one is she? I'm thinking oh, she's, LeBlanc. She's Rue McClanahan, definitely. Huh? She's got to be Rue McClanahan. Uh, she's got to be Blanche because that leopard print is ready to rock. Yeah, okay. So on a, on a Golden Girl scale, she's a four. <laughs> and so at the time, she's communicating with the angels that are up in their, I guess, their space station, which I I thought it was kind of cool that like they have a space station above the earth well, and they have a the they have the suit that I guess they removed from Jason. We'll still call it the anti spawn suit mm-hmm. and it's kind of jumping around and it's in this nuclear heavily um like a furnace judgment fired going on and it's kind of hopping around. One thing that's interesting about these guys too is that we going back to the timeline, Angela shows us all the the heavenly warriors and they're all like these super babes and stuff yeah. and it, it very much gives you the impression that that's what all the angels are like. But 
I think between his one-off issue of Spawn and the miniseries, you had the Grant Morrison run, and he's the one who introduced these masculine, semi-masculine, they're somewhat androgynous, angels that are golden with the cracked skulls and the fire coming out, kind of like Firestorm or something. These are the guys, right? I guess these are the guys, yeah. And these are the sci- like the science brigade or something. They look a little simpy. But it's interesting because, in my mind, I think this is somewhat true for you as well, is you always tend to think of Elysium and you tend to think about all the female warrior angels and that's like heaven to you but I guess that's sort of a different part of the heavens and there's more branches and more of a diversity of types well, you gotta figure it's just like hell the different levels you have the different demons so you're gonna right. have different angels and, and I'm wondering too I, it's too soon after the miniseries for McFarlane and Gaiman to be having troubles but I'm wondering if we're not getting all these elderly looking angels to differentiate but from those these angels that McFarlane has complete creative control over versus the babe angels of Neil Gaiman so yeah. I, I'm, I'm wondering if that's why we were suddenly getting all these elderly angels to, I'm here for it because I think it's really interesting because there's definitely never been a heaven that we've seen quite like this okay and I also so think le- that the new lady that takes over for Gabrielle she got busted for trying to conspire against Angela mm-hmm. and she reminds me in terms of her attitude a little bit of the the one from Beetlejuice that uh, is ne- trying to help the couple negotiate the afterlife and shit Are you Juno, our caseworker? Yes, I evaluate individual cases and determine if help is needed, deserved, and available. Are you available? No. Yeah, yeah, the one that's smoking and has her slit throat and yeah. the smoke comes out. I would see her playing her in a live-action movie. Mm-hmm. She's not a Golden Girl 4, though. She's not, That's more like a Golden Girl 2, but okay. Well, she's got a little bit of a Sophia thing going on, too. Ugh. Anyway, so this was the boring part to me, because we get back to Terry whining and crying, trying to hack, I think. What was he he's trying not really to whining and crying, though. You look at him, he's got that look of determination, and he's not all beat up anymore. I like the way Greg is drawing him. He's, he's not broken anymore. He's pissed. And we've seen him broken for a few months now, so we're seeing him kind of come back from that it looks like to me but he's trying to get into a system where he keeps getting denied i guess he's running out of avenues at work for protection yeah he they've they've set aside all the relevant information on when and the conspiracy within the agency and he's still set on investigating it because even though he's in the clear now you know nobody's after him anymore and in fact they're offering him all these jobs and shit uh he's not going to rest until he finds out who fucked him over and and gets him back and also brings him to justice because that was the whole point in the first place is he's trying to find out where these rotten apples are in the agency and root them out. Yeah. So then Spawn is sitting on his throne talking to Billy and Bootsy and he's kind of rehashing, you know, the Angela affair. Maybe he was a little too hard with those two kids, even dealing with the clan. Bootsy's like, you know, what's going on with your cape here? You know, it's not luscious and curly. <laughs> <laughs> and Spawn's kind of like, you know, ever since I've gotten back from... So are we calling it anything or are we calling it heaven? Are you heaven? You call it what makes work, okay. work works for you. So every time I every time I think about it, I'm thinking of uh, that Guns N' Roses knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> and then we are introduced to Phil Temper, who looked like the doll man to me from the DC comics. Yeah, he's, he's super fucking goober. Creepy, dude. With, like, yeah, with his fucking freckles shit and shit. Yeah, well, he definitely yeah. looks like he he keeps people's severed heads in jars and shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely, Just man. Way too clean cut and because they're talking about how he's like he has doing a like, suit made out of human skin yeah because they're talking about how he's committing like grand theft auto and shit it's like not phil temper this dude's a fucking psycho yeah but this they the sell him as being a saint basically he when he went to jail he turned his life around embraced god now he works now in i wonder super how tension. that happened huh i wonder how that happened a few too many drops soap drops <laughs> 
You never know, man. So anyway, he's he's blasted by uh, some kind of energy force and sent up to the satellite. And that's where he's getting baked with nuclear fire diffusion. That's actually a pretty intense look where, he, like, I'm assuming. So Jason was just encased in the suit and this guy, they're cooking him into the suit? Yeah, what they were talking about how they put the fire into Jason and he wasn't a willing vessel and he was a, a compromised vessel. And so it just wasn't taking and that's why he was in this agony because he was an evil person who couldn't handle it. Whereas Phil here has apparently legitimately given himself over to Christ. A completely willing vessel. His body will accept the fire. He will accept the will of the people who are running Orbital Station 1 here, these angelic beings. And so they've got a good match this time. But unfortunately, part of uh, what he's going to have to endure is his barely concealed... I like how they use one of his arms to conceal his butt crack, but otherwise the dude's full-on nude. They're going to apparently blow him to pieces and then reincorporate him as a a completely pure version of the anti-spawn. So yeah, that was pretty intense. I mean, mm-hmm. you see the fear, you know, see you see his eyes. Um, and of course, we do the nude broadcast CNN E and KRFDE where they yeah, kind of talk about I, this. They really I'm, didn't need this page this time. All they're doing is talking more and more about how this guy was ba- like this. Yeah, basically just talking figure. about how Phil disappeared. That's yeah. it. I, I read the first one. They read the second. I'm like, are you fucking making me read the same shit over mm-hmm. and over? Like, really, Todd? Yeah. Are you just trying to fill a page here, Todd? The dude's a saint. We get it. Can we move on, my man? Then we go to Sam and Twitch. Apparently, Sam is glad of his gluttonous because of scale and he's fucking with the chief leaving them little notes and I guess pushing the chief to the breaking point Bond is sitting in the alleyway he's hanging out with his bros he's now taking on the role of protector which mm-hmm. is a little weird and again you're right he's drawn really cool looking I dig the way it looks it almost looks like the chains are holding him up like Doc Ock because mm-hmm. they're kind of around him and they're pushing around and the suit immediately reacts to something and it or the chains do mm-hmm. and they kind of drag him and it's doing that whole Doc Ock thing where he's like leaping around well, and it, it reminds me a little bit of God's path from Donnie Darko where all of a sudden the chains are just going oh, yeah. off around corners and leading him to where he needs to be. True, yeah. And it's taking him to where the Redeemer is melting, Billy? But he's doing some weird shit with him because he's got all this golden goo over him. I guess that's the holy version of necroplasm. He just and they're jizzed teleporting all over him. him. Yeah, and they're teleporting him and so Spawn confronts the Redeemer. How do you like those speech bubbles? What do you mean? The, how the, the word balloons have the cross embedded in. Oh, yeah, I thought that was kind of neat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. So you know that he's speaking from the higher power, I guess? Well, it would have been nice if he spoke more like Shakespearean. Yeah, it, I, it, this is or very biblical, you know, If we had Todd Klein, he'd have done something really cool with the, like, he'd probably had a script or something in there. Yeah, something like, that's kind of what I expected the Redeemer would be like. Just talking in scripture all the time and shit, like, the Lamb has come. Shit like that. So he's teleporting Billy, smacks the shit out of Spawn. And again, Spawn is in a very weak state, so... Well, he's, I mean, Redeemer, anti-Spawn, previously owned the shit out of Spawn anyway. So it's a good thing that he's not here for Spawn, because you know, there's a good chance this guy would have kicked his ass anyway, but the only thing that's really saving him is that he's not the target. The Redeemer blasts Spawn in the chest and he drops dead, and they run up to check on him, all the guys. He's like, don't worry guys, I already had a hole in me from the last time, you know, the suit just kind of grew over the hole, so I don't know, that's weird, like, he just left the hole in his giant, you know, a giant hole in his chest, not to breathe or eat or anything, just a big hole. Well, I mean, it's not like he does, though. The only thing we've ever seen him do is, like, drink. But does he really taste it? Where does it go? Yeah. Yeah, that's the weird thing so anyway the suit then reacts and starts trying to protect spawn and it starts attacking the homeless guys and he tells everyone to run the suit kind of does this weird like carnage thing where like stretch out then we get the clock again at six nine seven one the suit then starts to kind of like wiggle and i have this sense of the morphing guy from slither you know it's encasing them or i don't know he just starts to mutate and this is where spawn evolves to the next spawn yeah my, my best guess is that he finally worked all that venom out of his system and the 
that the suit is leveling up. It, it had been traumatized. It had been in shock. They kept talking about how it wasn't working properly because of the experiences it had in Elysium. And that, I, I guess, maybe being exposed to these holy powers again kickstarted him or, or reset him or was like a fibrillator where it, it's got its rhythm back and then some because uh, he forms a new costume around Spawn. Yeah. The costume lives again. Next issue, a new look, which I thought was an interesting choice of words because you remember Batman in the old days, he added the uh, oval to his chest, a yellow oval. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that was, that's, from that point onward, he was referred to as New Look Batman. That was the version that Carmen Infantino did. And that was the first time the DC consciously moved away from the Bob Kane style. For the previous couple of decades, they made a point of trying to emulate Bob Kane that entire time. And that was the point where they finally decided, look, we're in the mid-60s now. It's time for Batman to make a change. So we're going to change his costume up some. And we're going to have him look like, you know, this new art style. And so I thought that was an interesting choice of words because I'm wondering if Todd was coming out from a similar place. Like, this is our new look spawn now. Well, yeah, because he does that weird, you know, one gauntlet's bigger than the other. Yeah. Kind well, of I mean, it's all in silhouette like now, now, but you can it? tell that it's a lot different. I don't know. I have my spawn figure somewhere around here. I guess it's in the other room. I was going to use them. I, I usually keep them in my computer room. Well, since we haven't um, seen the costume in this issue, I think probably we'll cover that one next time. Okay. So what'd you think? I'm a little disturbed because we've well, read... I've that about you since day one, but... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the comic. We've read multiple issues of Spawn in a row, and each one has actually been, can I say good? Is it, are we allowed to have good Spawn comics that we are entertained by and enjoy? Good? I, I think you're pushing the word good there. Um, really? I thought the stories have been pretty damn good. I, I, I thought they were fine. I didn't at any time start wandering about, you know, anything else in the world going on. I kind of stuck with them. Uh, Look, the, the, move, the, the story's progressing. We've had multiple stories where they were done in ones. This is the first time in a few months where we've had a multi-parter, but it sets up at the end of the issue. I want to see what's going to happen in the next issue. I'm, I'm legitimately curious. I think maybe Todd's getting better. I'm not saying that it's fucking Alan Moore over here and shit, but I think it's comparable with any other comic wait, 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 that come out wait, that wait, month story-wise. Did you just compliment Alan Moore? I'm, well, I mean, relative to Todd McFarlane. Okay, because I was about to say... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, all I'm saying is that for the longest time, Spawn has been a book that's gotten by on its production values and its artwork, and I feel like these last few issues we're, we're reading a comic book that is comparable with other comic books that doesn't have to be graded on a curve uh, on a par with the average comic of any other publisher okay I can work with that well given that this was like the number one comic book in the nation for many years it's nice that it's finally it has the entertainment value of it well let's be honest was it, was it number one because it's writing or was it number one because of a lot of speculation it's number one for a whole slew of factors including okay. the artwork especially and the toys and everything else well yeah I would say the artwork definitely the artwork yeah uh, I know, I, know I, I personally know people who bought it just for the artwork. I'm no stranger to watching mediocre books be at the top of the reading lists. I, it's nice for me to see Spawn, because everything the rest of the package was already there. It's nice for me to see Spawn finally have writing that validates its position in the sales ranks. Not that it's, again, the greatest writing of all time, but it's at least good enough to where I don't feel like, you know, you have to well, it's that way because X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, it's actually, could, the package is now there to where I can believe that this would be a number one book in the country. Okay. You've made your point, sir. <laughs> um, I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it was okay. It was out of character for Spawn. Yeah, but I, but I think funny, that, but I I guess I like that that the that uh, character growth in it. Mm -hmm. If you could call it that. My thing is, I wish that he'd done the whole hard traveling heroes thing for longer. I think he got back to New York really too quick. We only had a couple of issues. Like a Roman samurai through the U.S. A little bit, a little Ronin action. Yeah, get him, get him to see some different places and some different environments. It's kind of cool to see him in a 
bog and shit like that. And just get him out of New York. Uh, New York is such a heavily covered place in comic books, especially. But also, you've seen just in the, the weeks that he was missing and working his way back slowly to New York, he's happy to be home. He's happy to be among the people that actually want to spend time with him. He's glad that he's not being constantly confronted by these moral dilemmas. Uh, he could just beat the fuck up out of, you know, random assholes that run into his alleys and shit like he's used to. So it's, it's nice to have seen him take that journey, but I, I do wish he'd been gone a little bit longer just so that when he, you, you do get impact from him finally being back in New York, but it's only been a couple of issues. I think it would have been even more impactful if it had run like a six issue arc and then he's back in New York, but I still enjoy it for what, what's on the page. Okay. Wizard series three card number one. This is the Chromium series, Violator, created by Todd McFarlane. Real name, Violator. Age, centuries old. Height, 3 foot 4 in human form, which means he's shorter than Danny DeVito. Height, 11 foot 2 and a half inches in demon form. Weight, 203 pounds in human form, 725 pounds in demon form. First appearance, spawn number 2, Origin. Though next to nothing is known about the creature that calls itself the Violator, what is known is that he is one of the five demonic creatures who call themselves the Fleabiac Brothers. All of the brothers, Violator, Vacillator, Vindicator, Vaporizer, and Vandalizer, are denizens of the Eighth Sphere of Hell and serve the demon lord who granted powers to the hero known as Spawn. Powers. Though the full extent of the Violator's powers are unknown, he has exhibited shape-shifting abilities, superhuman strength, and incredible stamina, and he has proven to be nearly indestructible. No more clowning around! I'm not the Vindicator or the Victimizer! Or the vaporizer, or the vibrator. Which leads us directly into the much less well-known follow-up series, Violator vs. Bad Rock, by Alan Moore, Brian Denham, and Jonathan Sabal. Uh, were you at all familiar with Brian Denham? No. When I was a little kid, I mean, it starts when I was like five years old, my, uh, my brothers had, I, I went into one of their rooms and uh, they had a drawer for full of uh, comic books. I'd open it. I never opened this thing before. I was like, oh my gosh, like what are these, you know? And this was like 1974 or five, you know? But uh, I was just blown away by all these comic books. And one of my brothers, uh, he said, um, he's like, oh, they're comic books and people draw them and write them and color them and, you know, and then they <laughs> they color them with little dots, you know? He thought all the half-tone dots were like, they were like hand, hand done. And uh, I was like, well, I'm gonna do that when I grow up. And, uh, right then, I just, that was it. I was committed. I just kept focusing on uh, making comics. And, and even, um, I, I didn't ever want to get kicked out of comics, so I learned how to, like, do every step of them, you know, letter and write and color and everything. So I was like, there's nobody going to tell me I can't make comics. I'm from Dallas, mostly, and uh, I used to go around the Dallas uh, Fantasy Fair, which is a big convention back in the day, and in the 80s and 90s. And um, I'd, I'd show my artwork to uh, different editors and stuff, and uh, they'd give me tips. And uh, Kerry Gamble, uh, this big-time Marvel guy, uh, he was from Dallas, and uh, I would show him at conventions every six months or so. Every time they had a convention, he'd always show up, and I'd bring my portfolio and show him. And uh, John Cassidy from the X-Men, that's how he got broke into was like, you know, Kerry was teaching him some stuff, you know. But, um, so this went on for a few years, like from when I was... Oh my gosh, like uh, 14 to, you know, 18. And I had some interest from a couple of Marvel editors. And they even would hand out their numbers and I could call them in New York and, and uh, uh, talk to them there on the phone. 
uh, but I wasn't getting any traction and uh, I was, I, I, I don't know, I was like 18 and I was like, oh, I can't wait any longer, you know, I thought this was going to happen immediately. Right. So uh, I joined the Marines, I, I was like, I'm done and, uh, you know, uh, I, I got to develop my skills, you know, and um, so I kept focusing on that while I was in the Marines. When I got out of the Marines, me and a buddy uh, that I joined with, um, uh, he had some money from his mom dying or his grandma dying and uh, we published a, uh, like a self-published comic book and um, from there uh, I worked a couple of years at a comic book store and kept trying and uh, to make to make my own comic book uh, that I published in 94 called uh, My Name is Mud and uh, I worked at a comic book store in uh, Fort Worth called uh, Heroes and uh, we were part of the Jim Lee Killer Instinct tour, you know, with Mark Silvestri. That was a big thing back in 94. I mean, they were, it was huge. And um, so they, uh, Jim Lee's bus came through and Mark Silvestri went to a different city. But we had Jim Lee and uh, I worked the, the store all day long. And uh, at the end of the day, the, the manager of the store let me uh, meet Jim Lee. And um, <laughs> so I showed him my portfolio and, you know, my pages I was working on for this My Name is Mud comic book. And uh, he's, you know, gave me uh, some really great criticism, you know. And but he's like, uh, he's like, you are right there, you know. He's like, about six more months of practice, uh, you can you can break in. I was like, that's, that's the best thing I've heard, you know. Right. And um, I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it, you know. And he gave me tons of stuff to focus on too. Um, so I, you know, six more months, I I, I published that. Uh, My name is Mud. Self self published it. Got it through Diamond and stuff. And then I met um, Dan Frega at the uh, Dallas Fantasy Fair in 94. And uh, he liked my stuff and we talked and uh, he's like, let me introduce you to Rob, you know, <laughs> Rob Lightfield was there. I was like, what, no way. And uh, so he walked me over to Rob's table and Rob had just gotten done with this, like a million people in his line, you know, it was crazy. And, uh, but he was still full of energy and uh, uh, Dan Frege introduced him to me, or, you know, us together. And um, I, so I showed him the book and he liked it. But we just talked for a few minutes and that was it. Um, one of the other guys, because uh, when I would go to these conventions, like um, uh, Todd Nock and uh, uh, Jaime Mendoza, you know, who's a big inker and Todd's a big artist, um, they were at the shows too and they were always, you know, we were always in portfolio lines together sometimes. You would just meet up or whatever. It was like all the local guys knew each other uh, while we were getting uh, reviewed by editors. But uh, Jaime had interest from Rob and um, I did too, but I saw Rob again the next week at uh, San Diego Comic-Con and uh, Dan introduced me to him again. So he didn't need any, any, any introduction. Rob remembers everything, you know? <laughs> He's like, hey, you're that, uh, my name is Mud Guy from Dallas, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, you want a job? I was like, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't breathe. I was like, I was trying to play it cool, you know, but there, there was no cool there. I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like a job, yeah. And uh, he's like, all right, show at, on Monday, at my office in Orange County, you know, uh, near Los Angeles, and uh, I'll, I'll put you to work. I was like, okay, I could not breathe, man. I was just like, Boof. I was like, okay. So I, I like walked off, and everybody was like congratulating me from Extreme Studios and all this stuff. I had like twenty dollars in my pocket, and I was like, I got nowhere to stay, nowhere to live, nothing. And um, uh, Matt Hawkins, who was uh, you know, the, the president of Top Cow now, but he was uh, Rob's like right hand man back in the day. Um, he was like, we're going to put you up. We're going to, you know, don't worry about nothing. We will take care of you. 
And uh, so he talked it over with Todd Knock that I would stay at Todd's place. And, uh, you know, Todd's like, you can stay with me, but you got 10 days to make enough money to get out of here and get your own place. Right, right. I was like, okay. And uh, like Rob paid every Friday. So whatever you did that week, you turned in a voucher in the morning, you get paid at the end of the day, which was amazing, you know. And because uh, it's like, what was I working at a comic book store, you know, for a few months before? And it's like, and then it's like, every day we will pay you just, you know, Friday, you just hit it. Um, so uh, I got on a, uh, on one of the, the trains that would take you up my game track and took me up to Orange County with Todd and stuff. And uh, I, went, I went home with Todd. <laughs> we watched MST 3K all night. And then uh, came back the next morning because Todd's thing was, I will get there in the morning before Rob Liefeld gets there and I will leave after Rob Liefeld leaves, you know. And so um, we would show up early in the morning and stay until midnight because Rob was like always there, you know. And uh, But he, Todd was like, I will never let Rob leave before, I mean, like, you know, Todd would not leave before Rob left. Right, right. He was so focused on his work. And uh, I just went and... Uh, Rob was like, just just do pinups, just pinups of all my characters, you know. And the first day I did, uh, I won a Bad Rock. He asked me to show some some pictures of Bad Rock. So I did like four sketches, and he's like, do that one, you know. And I turned it into a double page spread. And um, oh, I got it right there. <laughs> um, uh, Rob liked it and uh, had one of the guys ink it and one of the guys color it. And ten days later, it was published in on a on a Wednesday. It came out that following Wednesday. Uh, at the comic book stores in Youngblood Battlezone number two. And um, that that was the most impressive thing I think I've ever seen is like how fast that turning around time was back in the day. It's like, I drew it on a Monday, <laughs> colored it on a Tuesday, you know, or inked it on Tuesday, colored it on Wednesday, uh, sent it to the printer, printed the book, and it was on stands like so fast. It was crazy. I was like, I just drew this thing and now it's, you know, I'm going to a comic book store and seeing it on his stuff shelves, you know. And uh, he's done several pieces for me commission wise. Some of the best stuff I own. And I, I thought he did a pretty fucking fantastic job on this series. And it really is a shame that it isn't better known. People know Violator. People are aware of that series. They know Alan Moore wrote it. They know Bart Sears drew it. But I don't think hardly anybody even knows Violator versus Bad Rock even exists. Because this is after the bust and uh, it seems like maybe the people have moved on. It's like one of those lost Alan Moore stories it seems to me. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I wasn't really familiar with this one. A big thing about Todd McFarlane's uh, section of Image is where everybody else tried to become Napoleons. They all had their these mini magnates and shit with their own studios and shit. McFarlane was the one guy who's like, I'm going to keep putting out Spawn and when I put out anything besides Spawn, it's going to be something special. He did Violator and it was something special and then I, he allowed Extreme Studios to do Violator versus Bad Rock and I guess they just didn't have the promotion or the cachet. So the first issue of, of of the four issue miniseries came in to as the 209th selling best selling comic of 1995. Wow! So, so by comparison, the first issue of Violator vs. Bad Rock sold maybe better than the last issue of Violator uh, miniseries, and probably not even that well because by 95 the market had dropped to such a degree that they're probably not even comparable. By the third issue, it was ranked at the 297th best selling comic book of that year. There was a two month delay on issue number two, but they did eventually catch it up just to get a sense of where we're at on the Turokometer. By the time the miniseries is getting started, that book is already on issue 31 and Spawn is on issue 32. So this is probably a year or so 
out from uh, the Violator miniseries. Uh, the story is called Rocks and Hard Places. Uh, and also, Danny Miki does inking on some of the later issues. Now, at this point, you said the market was falling. By, 95, by 95, the market had pretty well collapsed. The bus started in 93. And you started seeing the real heavy collapse by 94. So in 95, things were getting pretty fucking desperate, as I recall. So just a little background with Brian Denham. Before he had done this book, he did a book called My Name is Mud for Incognito Comics. Almost certainly taken from the Prodigy song. Of, not the Prodigy, the um, Primus song. Primus, I was about to say. And uh, he'd also done Bad Rock's Youngblood Battle Zone profile. So basically, they're Ohatmu or Who's Who for Extreme Studios. Uh, he'd done the pinup for Bad Rock, probably as an audition or an anticipation of this miniseries. Or he was just a badass pinup, and that's how he got the book. But if you really want a story, <laughs> my first job at Extreme Studios, uh, I-, I can never live that down, is... Um, uh, Alan Moore wrote my first book, you know, and um, uh, <laughs> uh, people tease me all the time. They're like, you, 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 your first work in comics was written by Alan Moore. You, you don't deserve that or whatever. <laughs> but um, when I was working at Rob, you know, he told me, oh, you suck at John Lennon. And uh, we'll only give you a book of monsters in it. And uh, Todd McFarlane came in the studio one day and he had uh, miniatures of Violator and, uh, you know, action figure prototypes of Violator and uh, Spawn, or uh, Violator and Bad Rock. And he was showing them to Life Up. And uh, Rob came running back in the, in the bullpen, and he's like, oh, Denim, I got your book right here. You know, it's Violator versus Bad Rock, you know. <laughs> and um, he's like, it'd be perfect for it. just be a big old monster fight. And uh, I was like, oh, my God, that would be awesome. <laughs> and he goes, who do you want to write it? And we started looking around like there were writers in the bullpen, you know, and he was thinking I was going to choose one of those guys. And uh, I said, uh, Alan Moore. He goes, he goes, what? He goes, there is no effing way we can get Alan Moore to write your book. I just, I just deadpanned him. I was like, you're Rob Liefeld. You can do anything. Right. He's like, all right. He's like, F and F, 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 you know, just cause he's like, all right. And he walked out and, uh, like a week later, they had called Alan Moore, got a hold of him, asked him if he wanted to write this book, and he said yes, and the story goes, I don't know if it's true, but he needed beer money or something. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he'd write it, and um, so he, that was it. I, I was committed, you know, and, and Rob came back and told me, you got your book, you know, Rob, you know, Alan Moore's going to write your book. And again, you know, when Rob, I was trying to play it cool, I was like, all right. He's like, how are you not more excited, Jesus Christ, about your skin? <laughs> I was just like, but man, my heart was just like a cartoon. And so the miniseries starts in Washington, D.C. I can tell you right off the bat, this was one of my least favorite books that we were reading at the time. Uh, you mean uh, the, the ones we're covering? Yeah, the Violator stories. Yeah, so you didn't like this one as much as the first no, one? I blew through this one as fast as I could. I mean, the artwork was fine. I just, the story felt really weird. Well, what is the story, though? So basically, the Violator's attacking a van, armored vehicle. Which I don't entirely understand. I, I think that he was trying to kill some more mobsters, which is, I think, a fairly loose understanding of his whole motivation. Yeah. And apparently they had Bad Rock in the vehicle. Yeah, it was apparently a trap that, that they'd set specifically. To well, because they wanted to catch him. They knew he was from hell or there's a science organization that knows he's from hell and they're trying to study creatures from there. They know there's one loose. Kind of very Predator 2 feel to it. Yeah. Um, the, the specific person who enlists Bad Rock is a lovely Dr. Sally McAllister. She looks like a Fox News anchor. And yes. she's working with the Whiteside Parsons Institute, which I feel because of the complicated name was intended 
didn't have more going on, but I don't think they do anything outside of this miniseries. And so it's part of Project Dante, where they're trying to lure these celestial beings in order to go to these other dimensions, basically these heaven or hell dimensions. Well, yeah, because they want to mine them for new minerals and new technologies, and Badrock is trying to capture the Violator. He beats the shit out of the, Vi- the Violator, which I thought was weird. I would have figured the Violator could take on Badrock. Well, uh, it is worth noting that the people from the Institute fire some sort of specialized weapons at Oh, that's right. That's right. Like yeah. trank, trank weapons. Yeah. So they ha- they've got something to, because it seems to me like it's a pretty decent fight between Violator and Badrock at first until the tranks come in and that's when they take Violator down. It is pretty cool the way they're flying him into the lab where he's hooked on between two helicopters. Yeah. It looks like it takes that much just to lift the guy up. I wonder how much that dude's supposed to weigh. Yeah. You would think he wouldn't weigh so much as skinny as he was. Yeah. Right. And so they start talking about how they saw the Violator in the mall. They saw the portal. And we see the inside of the Whiteside Parsons Institute and it's interesting because it's one of those buildings where the, the center is sort of hollow and it's just like level upon level of circling around that building. I actually worked at a building in Midtown that was similar to this and I've uh, once stayed in a prison that was converted into a hotel that also had a similar design to this. The life you live, Frank. The <laughs> life you live. At which point we are introduced back to the violator. He's behind some kind of energy bars which are keeping him trapped. They want to start dissecting him and shit like that, don't they? They're definitely studying him. I don't know if they're going so far as to dissect him, but it, it's definitely not a hospitable environment. And the whole time he's kind of fucking with Badrock, trying to get in his head, trying to get him to fight so he can break free. Badrock is able to blow it off, I guess, not without being a little pissed off. Well, I think it's a similar dynamic as with Spawn. Badrock, let's face it, is not the genius of the Youngblood group either. And True. so he's, he's seen... Well, he's like, like a 13-year-old be- kid, right? I think he's supposed to be 16. Okay. He's more worried about Youngblood and what they think. And at this time, was it an angel? Who's that woman that breaks up or just breaking in? I was confused. Because uh. the Violator has been captured, people know that he's on Earth and they know that he's being restrained. So he knows that people are going to be coming after him. Basically, he knows that one of the angels, like Angela, is going to get a hunting license and come after him. And his big thing is he just wants to know which one it is so he knows what he's dealing with. And he wants to try to get out of this trap as soon as possible because he knows once one of those angels come, he does not want to be a sitting duck. And so when the angel does show up, basically it looks like Angela but with white hair and with purple highlights rather than uh, the color scheme of Angela. But this person is way more brutal than Angela. Like, there's some security guards that try to stop her from getting into the building, and she just tears the shit out of them with no regard for human life. And so, as the security cameras start picking her up, Violator's asking, oh, just describe her. When Badrock does, he's like, Celestine, you're in trouble. Come to think of it, so am I. So, Celestine, she has a necklace of rebel angel teeth. She recommended the plagues of Egypt. She was the one who ordered the airstrike against Sodom and Gomorrah. Basically, she's the John Bolton of heaven. Uh, without the scruffy mustache? Well, we don't know what she's got going on under that skirt. Ah! Oh, uh, low blow, low blow. So she's powering through, getting to Violator. She's shot to the point where her clothes is ripped off her body. She reaches in, she reaches her staff of power, and then boom, there you go. Full-on angel. Yeah, and that's when she gets using her... angelic power to kill everybody? Yeah, so she's dressed like Psylocke, but more fetishistically, because she's got more buckles and stuff. She's got the black kiss makeup, just like Angela because she's clearly supposed to be one of the same group as Angela and she's got the long flowing white hair rather 
rather than the strawberry blonde like Angela's got. I do think it's worth noting too that Celestine is copyright Alan Moore. So, oh, is she? Yeah, so even though there's all these fucked up rights issues with Rob Liefeld stuff these days, technically Alan Moore owns this character, although I doubt he'd ever do anything with her. And on the second issue cover where she she's on by Rob Liefeld, who gives her gigantic knockers yes. that are held together by one of those bra belts, you know, before they were in vogue. And um, no feet. Yeah. Uh, she's got a sash with a various spawn icons, so you can see that she's had some successful spawn hunting done as well. And so she's walking up to finish off the Violator. She hits the Professor, the only one she doesn't kill when the Professor confronts her. Bad Rock is, I guess, in a sense, protecting the Violator. She's getting to the room. Violator's kind of getting inside his head, talking shit. She picks up the orb. What was that orb from? You know, I'm not sure. I think it has something to do with the what they're trying to use to open up a portal to hell. Okay. I, I think it's something that the Institute was using to make that happen. Because they've got this platform where they're just going to use the energy that they're planning on drawing from the Violator to activate this platform, this orb, that's supposed to help them get access to hell. At this point, Bedrock and his infinite intelligence decides by letting out the Violator to fight the Angel, they'll beat the shit out of each other and hopefully he'll be so weakened that he can take out whoever's left. And he decides to release the Violator. Yeah, but instead the Violator becomes the clown pretends to be human. Celestine, obviously not the brightest person either, falls for this and starts thinking that Badrock is the demon she's going after. They fight and while she's preoccupied, Violator comes up behind her and rips out her heart through her boobs. Her gigantic, ridiculous, almost entirely naked boobs in, in a rather graphic fashion. And he's playing air guitar as he's doing this. Yeah, he's getting a lot. Oh, and he thrusts his pelvic region and stuff. He yeah. says swing. He, he takes a lot of uh, Wayne and Garthisms. I thought this was, was kind of cool. So what's her name? Celestra? Celestine. So Celestine is in her dying moment, reaches over and grabs the orb where the orb was and basically pumps it full of angel energy mm-hmm. and teleports the entire building to hell. So Alan Moore revisits the eight levels of hell. Was it eight levels he created? I think so, yeah. So it, it was in issue eight of Spawn and we're seeing a lot of the same creatures that were introduced in that story that he did. And again, it, it is called the Dante Project. So, you know, Dante's Inferno. Here sure. we go. We're teleported back. And of course, the first thing the doctor wants to do is get out there and start studying shit. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I she's was very crazy. gung-ho. Yes. I've really enjoyed Brian Denham's artwork in the series. He definitely has a super cut Bad Rock. He's not yeah. the pudgier Bad Rock we usually see with Rob Liefeld. This dude is just fucking ripped. And while he definitely has a stylistic similarities to Rob Liefeld, he's also clearly been looking at Stephen Platt during his peak days. And he does oh, yeah, really fucking stuff, right? fine. And so he's doing a lot of fine detailing and cross-hatching. And it, it looks really fucking cool. It's one of these things where like some of his other characters are much more basic, like the women don't have a lot of detail to them and you can see where he's not nearly on the same plane as some of the other image artists but when he really focuses on an image and especially he gets to cut loose on Bad Rock since he doesn't have to be photorealistic and he just put in all the ridiculous detailing he wants to he's great at drawing Bad Rock I would have to say he's my favorite Bad Rock artist pretty easily the rest of the stuff doesn't look quite as good he's good with the Hell stuff I think and okay with Violator I do like you know even the creatures in Hell he does pretty cool well it's really cool to see all the ones from the spawn number 8 yes I remember how so much you liked all of the, the blood spiders and you have some kind of giant snake octopus thing that's shooting out of the portal they show the giant angel which I thought was cool as shit the robot angel with the flaming hair and the rockets. yeah yeah and there's what there's a page there too where he manages to knock her away and he's looking out at her and man very Wills Portacio you could definitely see that he was taking a lot of influence from the other image artists and some of the ones I tend to like better so I, I really dig that at this point the clown turns back into Violator since he's in hell the brothers are there again they see the portal. The angel is knocked out. The steampunk angel. The brothers, they re- 
realize that the person they took wasn't the clown, right? I don't know. That, yeah, maybe. Probably by that point. They're not that stupid. <laughs> and so they see this building. They decide they're going to go and investigate it themselves. The last panel is basically all the brothers showing up with the violator and Badrock and the one of them. That's not the last panel, but it's a lead up, basically a family reunion amongst the brothers. Yeah. And also it's worth noting that the Celestine body, this, you know, it's a corpse, but its power is still surging through the device, but she is slowly aging to dust. And so they basically have a sense of the timetable they're working off of, how long they have before they're going to return to Earth. And so the doctor is insisting on going out and exploring hell, trying to pick up fauna and like that and meanwhile she gets caught between Violator and, and the Fleabiac brothers and of course Badrock just wants to get back to Earth he's adamant about protecting her but she doesn't really want his protection and he's she got a huge crush on her too it's obvious yeah 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 it's awkward shooing crush the Badrock ends up fighting the Violator's brother yeah he shoves uh, one of the brothers into the other brother's gullet and so they're walking around like a dual assed creature for a little bit yes Badrock's bogus journey Bill and Ted were another influence on the <laughs> characterization of the people in this miniseries how did you think the art works holding up so far like i said i think that bad rock looks really fucking cool as cool as he ever looks is when he's drawn by brian denham i think he just has a way of doing the head and the eyebrows that's more effective than anybody else ever could but a lot of the other figures around him aren't so great i think he's good at drawing hell he's pretty good at drawing the fleabiac brothers but when it comes to the human characters he just doesn't seem to have a level of interest or the command to make it look nearly as good as the other figures or maybe just lack of interest he's putting so much effort into the areas that you can tell he's into that i think he maybe other areas get short shrift but you do have some decent backgrounds not great definitely image good not objective good um, but there are backgrounds and i gotta give him some credit for that this was the bedrock toy i remember seeing in the stores absolutely when he, yeah, put, the issue when he puts four, on the armor so at one point before the, everybody everything goes to hell but on bump there's a delivery crew that's bringing bedrock this great big box and apparently this is when they ship him his dumb bunny rabbit apple seed armor which he's fucking bedrock why does he need guns and armor but yeah we've seen him do that have that action with the mini pockets with all the pockets and the shoulder pads and everything else yes but the main thing is you know rob liefeld getting way way into robot bunny years as you pointed out in previous episodes yes <laughs> and so he decides he's going to go out and find the professor who had taken off to go explore hell in his armor and the violators watching him walk off and the violator just wants to leave as well doesn't he yeah he wants to get the hell out of there yeah he doesn't want to stay in hell i don't believe he's welcome there anymore he's kind of yeah, fucked mean, up too look, much he, he's kind of ruined his name he's on the outs with malbolgia and he knows if Mel Bolger catches him, he's going to get fucked with again. The Fleabiac brothers are wanting him. And frankly, I think he likes being a powerful bully on Earth. True. We have that scene where he opens up, I guess, that rocket launcher on, on his uh, shoulder and blows up some demons when he's trying to protect the doctor. He starts punching things. There's some new monster I don't remember seeing before. They find the orb, or he has the orb. He's surprised that the doctor's not grateful for being rescued. She seems a little one-dimensional. She's very driven. She's definitely the hard-ass, cold, career-driven person but I do like that she's clearly an intellectual she definitely has uh, curiosity that she's not and she's fairly fearless I mean she's not stupid enough to not realize that she's in great danger this is a perilous course of action but she's so driven to explore that she can't uh, help herself okay uh, but she's Violet also really or... unpleasant and, and really mean to bad rock so that definitely comes off as one dimensional as well oh, sure they come across the brothers again Violator and Bedrock are I guess by now the time is ticking right in terms of what's left of the angel 
Exactly. Yeah, because if, if they don't get out before the angel juice is, is tapped, we're going to remain in hell. And now uh, this was the part I thought was weird. Apparently, Bedrock can use the angel's baton or her staff. Yeah, yeah, that was a little different. But he, he uses it to blast the Violator. At the very end, yes. they trap Violator in hell. And when they teleport back, of course, his brothers are there waiting for him. And I guess, was there supposed to be another series after this? Or I don't know. Again, you know, the market got weird. It seemed like the door was left open. There also is a note that Admonisher got out of hell off panel. He gets referenced, which is cute. So he's, he's yeah. still out there somewhere. They even, they will call back. Let's see. We don't know who this guy is. He ain't like a demon or anything, but he's covered in muscles with guns everywhere. He keeps asking for somebody called Roosevelt, so says he's going to admonish him. So they do the Roosevelt call back to the first miniseries. That's cute. So, and um, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Like I said, this was my least favorite one. This I, one was a little bit of a chore to get through. No, I, I enjoyed it. it. It wasn't... Really? Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed both miniseries. I, obviously, the art by Bart Sears is incomparable, but I just really enjoyed what Denim was doing with Bad Rock. I've never enjoyed looking at Bad Rock in action as much as when Denim was drawing him. It is a shame that he's not so great with the human characters, especially the women. The anatomy's a little wonky with women. He gets way better drawing women later on. Yeah, I actually have a piece that he did of a female character that's fucking excellent, but he's also done an Iron Man miniseries uh, that was written by Adam Warren with a female villain, and uh, she sort of like recalls Joe Lindsay's Dawn, and man, he draws some fucking fantastic, cool goth chicks, uh, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, that's really not in evidence in this miniseries, so that is a bit of a weak point. Some of the action is kind of so-so, but overall, I really enjoyed it. I think it was much better than anybody had a right to expect from a miniseries called Violator vs. Bad Rock out of Extreme Studios. Okay. Well, um, in the 90s, you know, I was at Extreme Studios maybe a year and a half or so. I left Extreme Studios and I went to, um, I went back home to Dallas. And um, that was right before, like, Extreme Studios started collapsing, all the, the mid-90s image collapse, you know, uh, Extreme got turned into awesome and uh, Ma- Maximum or something else. There's another name for a while, Arcade. Um, uh, but uh, it, it felt like my time to go. And um, some of the other artists there, they'd left for animation right at the beginning of an animation thing. Uh, so I left, I went home, and uh, there was some convention at a small town south of Fort Worth called Cleburne. And I went there, and there was uh, Antarctic Press guys, and there was uh, uh, Chaos Comics. And uh, I got to meet Brian Polito, and I got to meet a bunch of the Antarctic Press guys. And um, uh, well, so after I left the Extreme Studios, and I, I, I moved there, um, I remembered that some of the, uh, one of the other co-workers at this comic book store I worked at, uh, he was really big into this Antarctic Press book called Twilight X. Anyway, uh, the creator of that was there, and I just started freaking out over his book because it's such an awesome book. And um, But both Antarctic Press and Chaos were like, oh, we'd love for you to do some stuff for us, you know. Uh, Brian Polito said, uh, draw a couple of pinups by Monday, and they better knock my socks off, and if they do, I'll give you work. If they don't, we'll just go our separate ways, you know. I'm like, okay. So I did some stuff for Brian Polito, sent it to him on Monday. Uh, Anarchy Press called and they said, uh, come down here. Uh, we just want to, you know, hang out and let you look at our studio. And uh, I did that. Uh, so I got some work from Chaos. Uh, Anarchy Press, uh, you know, I, I just drove down there just for a little day trip or whatever and, you know, uh, checked out the studio. That was when, man, that studio was packed at that time, you know. Uh, there was a lot of guys there and, um, and they even had cleaning service, they had insurance, you know, the, they were popping, you know. Uh, Because they were doing really good with Warrior Nun and all that stuff. 
but they had asked if after I left if I wanted to uh, draw Warrior Nun because they wanted uh, a new look on Warrior Nun separate from Ben's manga style been done the creator of Warrior Nun. Uh, that's how I got started at Anarch Press, and since then I've left and gone to work at Top Cow and other companies, DC, Marvel, and all that stuff. But I always do stuff for Anarch anytime they'd ever call. But they told me from like 1997, you know, if you ever want to do anything the rest of your life, we, we will publish it. Like you don't even have to pitch anything to it. Uh, which was a relief, knowing that uh, there's that outlet there, you know. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I moved down here and um, just started becoming more a part of the, the studio, you know. Uh, and just a couple of years ago, I became editor-in-chief, and now I do the diamond ads, you know. I have to do diamond ads by Wednesday, you know. It takes a couple of days to do them, you know. But I do uh, logos for them, uh, all these different books. Uh, sometimes I do covers. So you really did enjoy these then, huh? Again, we've had to get through some, some slog. We've, we've slogged through some shit. Let's be honest. Yeah. So is it The Dark Now Returns or anything? No, no. But relative to the stuff we've read from Image, I think it's great. And I also just enjoy Alan Moore cutting loose. And in True. Fact, in fact, this is probably something we ought to talk about a little bit right quick while I'm thinking about it. So okay. there was an interview in Hero Illustrated number 23, cover dated May 1995. And it was actually dual interviews, The Punk and The Godfather. And basically, you had the guy who did Lethargic Man interview Rob Liefeld at the same time uh, somebody else I can't recall who it was was interviewing Alan Moore and so what was weird is they bisected each page and part of it would be Alan Moore and part of it would be Rob Liefeld so you can almost like compare and contrast but I tried reading them like back and forth and it just doesn't fucking work you finally just had to stop and read one interview and then read the other interview it's Greg Highland who's interviewing Liefeld Moore's interviewed by Impy Love Stories is Steve Darnell Moore liked revisiting concepts of hell from his spawn issue and laughed a lot while writing writing the stories he was basically getting his kicks writing this goofy shit uh, he needed yeah. a break from the heavy stuff because this is back when he was doing Lost Girls and From Hell he needed the heavy stuff to make up for how goofy the image stuff was but he also needed the lightness of the image stuff to get through how hard some of the work he was doing in that time period was on his more personal work he also said he enjoyed writing for a younger audience but he did find that plotting out the layouts for the image stories because again he would literally draw each page of his comics just to give the artist a sense of what he was going for and trying to lay out all the shit that he was asking the writers, artists to draw was difficult for him. It was more physically demanding to do that than, you know, obviously from Talking Heads and From Hell. So meanwhile, Rob Liefeld said that he did tributes, not swipes, and that he never used action figures for <laughs> reference because apparently they were accusing him of using action figures to pose for his drawings. Highland specifically said that he recognized an action figure from a Liefeld drawing, but he denied it. Highland said that it was unethical for Rob Liefeld to draw all the way he does because his anatomy promoted ignorance of the anatomical form um where <laughs> too much exaggeration with a weak perspective I think that Liefeld called McFarlane's Spider-Man anatomy lazy as in, in reply and he admitted that he's never going to do a cure of backgrounds or Jim Lee like realism Liefeld did, uh, you know he loves artists like Jeff Smith but that's not who he is either he doesn't see inherent merit in the excessive panels of George Perez like when he came back to Youngblood after all the criticism he took he tried to do all these little tiny panels and all these like headshots and everything else he was trying to force himself to do more panels 
per page and talking heads so that the readers would get more value out of his comic books because he was tired of people saying that you could read his comic books too quickly. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he was looking at what Mark Silvestri was doing in uh, Cyroforce and how Silvestri was actually getting away from doing talking head type of stuff that he used to do with Chris Claremont. And he realized, look, I'm Rob Liefeld. I, he, he, he doesn't want to feel like he was neutered drawing like Kurt Swan, you know, or that's how he was feeling. He wanted to draw kick-ass, throw everybody around, fight sequences. That was his strength in life. I actually recently retweeted a video that a British fellow did where they tried to say that Rob Liefeld was the Kurt Cobain of comics, that he like had this punk aesthetic and that he kind of revolutionized the form and shit. And I really don't think that's true. I think that... No, not even close. Yeah, maybe the Bush, maybe the Bush of, of comics. No, he's more along the lines of uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, oh, fucking uh, Smash Roach. Mouth? Smash huh? Mouth. Smash Mouth, yes. He's the Smash Mouth, maybe. The lyrics of Walking in the Sun are actually quite good, I have to say. <laughs> Read the lyrics one of these days. My father once, like, he really liked Smash Mouth, and he bought like, three of their albums, and he made he made a point of sitting there and breaking down the lyrics for me of Walking on the Sun, and he compared it to The Beat Goes On by Sonny and Cher, and basically talking about sociopolitical elements in the, the work of Smash Mouth. So don't sleep on Smash Mouth. All right, I'm, I I did not know you were such an advocate. Not me. Not I'm not I'm not here to defend Smash Mouth, but old dude will if you get him riled up. <laughs> All right, fine. They're 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 the uh, fucking Better than Ezra. He's the better of Ezra. I like, hey, I like better than Ezra, though. Oh, my God. But of like, course you would. <laughs> of course you would. King of New Orleans. I'm trying to stay away from Veroca Salt and all the all the other bands you love. So. You know you know how I feel about Rob Liefeld's artwork? It's uh. good. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No? Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> No, look, I, I'm fond of Rob Liefeld. Kurt Cobain is too much, but I do think he gets shit on way too much. And I do think, well, again, he, he talks a little bit about this. He talked, he called Young Bud number one a mess with uncompleted additional pages that were rushed out and didn't make sense. He talked about how he'd been negotiating with Fox for six months after walking away from CBS. And of course, the Young Bud cartoon never came out, yeah. regardless of all of his efforts. The problem with being at CBS is he had visions of his cartoon coming out like Fish Police or The Flash or Kellogg's and dinosaurs and he didn't want a sucky cartoon and he thought that the Wildcats cartoon that came out of CBS actually damaged the Wildcats brand. Finally he talked about how he was starting Maximum Press for more non-image style books like Evangeline, Black Flag and Battlestar Galactica. I'm not sure how not image that was. I think actually maybe he was a little bit forward looking about what image would become fairly quickly so I think it's a shame that he didn't just keep the books at image which uh, the image partners agreed on. I think that Rob Liefeld works best when he's not realistic and that British guy who was caught comparing with Cobain I don't buy that but he did compare him a lot to Jack Kirby and I do think there's a lot to be said for that because Jack Kirby also did not have proper anatomy but he had dynamism that was not present in comic books before he basically invented it for the medium and I know Kirby isn't for everybody either but there is so much in common between Liefeld and Kirby Kirby was a better storyteller no question about it but I think there's a dynamism to Liefeld and an action and he can do he's much better when he's not trying to be anatomically correct and just by virtue of being anatomically correct doesn't make you a better artist Celestine, my self-esteem is at an all-time low I'm holding on with both hands, but I'm ready to let go Now we're moving on to Celestine, number one, which was released. What? Huh? 
Okay. You lose me? No, go ahead. Okay. So now we're moving on to Celestine number one, which was released on May 8th, 1996. So at this point, we're talking about almost two years out from Violator versus Bad Rock. The book was by Warren Ellis, Patrick Lee, and a whole lot of inkers that I'm not going to go into. Number one was ranked 29th for the month that it was released. So obviously it did much better than Violator versus Bad Rock, it seems like. Maybe. I don't know. Because I think one was I was basing on years and one I'm basing my months. So that might be the most accurate parallel. Number two ranked number 49th when it was released two months later. It was only a two-issue miniseries. And on the Turokometer, we're now along the lines of Turok Dinosaur Hunter number 47. That was the issue in which the book was canceled. So we've gone from Bart Sears launching Turok to Turok is now canceled. Uh, okay. Celestine came out around the same time as Spawn number 45. So as you recall, we're starting in the 20s and then we're in the 30s for Violator Bad Rock and now we're in the 40s, almost the 50 with Spawn. So you want to tell a little bit about the plot of Celestine while I go grab a drink? Well, hold on. It's been a long time since I've read this book. Okay. I so I'll go grab a drink and you flip through it right quick. Okay. Because as you can hear, my voice is getting pretty raw. I mean, it's her waking up in hell. I remember that vaguely. Right, right. And so uh, there's this female devil. There's an unfamiliar version of hell because Celestine's been to hell before and she recognizes this isn't hell even though it's being communicated to her that it is hell. And so she's like, no, this is bullshit. I'm dead. This isn't hell. What the fuck's going on? She's very suspicious. Meanwhile, there's a researcher named Joseph Yallop who is with the Whiteside Parsons Institute. So this is one instance where that does get revisited. And he is trying to seek hell or this female devil. I don't really recall the specifics of it. Meanwhile, Nama the demoness is working in a position to him. She gets enlisted by some angels that don't seem to be the angels from Spawn Comics because they don't have the kiss makeup. Or maybe yeah. they're just like lower ranking. I'm not sure which. They're similar enough though that I, I assume there was like some parody. I always assumed Angela and them were like archangels and these are another type of angel. The more basic bitches. Yeah, administrative angels type. <laughs> well, I mean, you take somebody like, uh, was it Gabriella that was the one who worked on Earth and we never saw her with the eye makeup, for instance. That's true. So, okay, so she's being walked through hell, which is, I mean, the artwork's okay. Yeah. What do you little... think about Pat Lee? Do you, did you ever see his stuff anywhere else? No, not really. Wasn't he the one he was... who did those Dreamwave Transformers comics? I don't know, man. Did you pick up the Dreamwave stuff? No. I think I picked up like one or two issues and it just wasn't for me. Pat Lee's style evolved a lot over the years. I think that he's definitely taking cues from Michael Turner here. He's definitely trying to do that brittle, he's got the lanky female figures and he's got like hyper detailing in parts and then more simple and other areas. I always felt like Turner had this sort of like brutal quality, like some, like something flaky, like wood bark. I don't know. It, it always felt like things were shedding around him. Uh, <laughs> it's just like the texture he had. Like that, that kind of a wood okay. bark kind of thing going on, right? And so we've got these angels. They look a little bit more like Greco-Roman. You know, they're running around in togas with the little ornamentation around the edges and stuff. Celestine is still dressed, not dressed, undressed. I was about to so say, she's undressed. not really dressed. Like she's constantly, they're finding ways to hide her nipples while she's essentially nude even though she's supposed to be in costume but over the course of fighting the demon she keeps like getting stripped and like parts of her seem to get covered she's running around in the thong and then you got the demon chick she's fighting who's got porcelain skin Loki horns but they're more like a bull and then she can turn she's got like the witch blade but it's not a witch blade and, I, I, and I she has like kind of like raven claws on her feet yeah, and in one hand got, got some Indian stuff in the mix it seems like in her outfit I don't know but anyway the, it's not the, a cool design yeah the devil chick is keeps fucking with Celestine either mentally or just physically beating the shit out of her throughout the first issue. But what's the point of it? See, you tore Sodom and Gomorrah open, murdered children in the Passover. You're a fanatic. Oh, okay, so she's kind of punishing her. So I guess she's in, what, angel hell? Uh, they're not clear at this point. Okay. Hadn't Warden Ellis already worked on Witchblade at this point by 96? Because they did that Witchblade anthology series, right? The Tales of the Witchblade or something like that? 
Yes, I read. Yeah, where she's in Egypt. Yeah, you can definitely see the influence there. God's instrument of destruction, the angel Celestine, was sent to Earth on a mission to annihilate the demon scourge known as the Violator. Tricked into believing that Bedrock was her quarry, Celestine was momentarily distracted and attacked from behind by the Violator, who succeeded in ripping out her heart. And with her death, she fell into the depths of hell to find out where angels go when they die. And so, uh, Nama the Demoness is continuing to work with the angels. She manages to get to like the gates of heaven where there's demon heads on pikes and shit like that. I guess she was going through heaven to get to where the little sorcerer guy from the Institute, he's kind of a diminutive figure, he's kind of a small person, Joseph Yallop. And so she manages to get to where he's casting his spell to open up the gate to hell. I think he's trying to release Celestine from this false version of hell. And so Nama manages to finally find a way around his circle of protection and uses her xenomorph demon tongue thing to split to kill the, the angels yeah very bloodily and so he's killed. wears her head as an she wears the angel's head as a as a hat at one point yeah and so this guy is basically creating an opportunity for celestine to get out of this false hell she almost makes it to the gates of the exit and then because of his death she ends up trapped in that hell and that's where she her story ends now do you have any idea why we just spent two issues with a uh, post-mortem of celestine no so this is actually a setup for a crossover uh, between celestine and angela and between extreme and, and mcfarlane although it's all done by extreme we're not going to touch on that for a long time until angela's adventures catches back up with spawn we're not going to address her but i did want to make sure that we pointed out while we were dealing with celestine in the violator versus bad art miniseries that even though the character is dead that's not the end for her i mean she's an angel and there's more to death than just dying so was this a way for them to get away from alan moore's version of celestine by morphing her and changing her up well i think that if the character is called celestine and it's a direct continuation of the previous miniseries i don't think you can get around that and in fact the copyright notice for alan moore is in the issues alongside with the copyright notice for violator being topic oh, Carlings. Okay. i don't think it's that i think it's just reintroducing the character after she'd been gone for a while and since alan moore apparently didn't have any interest in doing this crossover miniseries or in less help to set it up what did you think of the two-parter uh, i'd have to read it but i mean it seems interesting i mean it, it seems just like you said it's just a setup for i guess the crossover when we get to it she has a cool design i did as i was flipping through you were right they did find a lot of ways to uh cover the nip yeah but they yeah. made no such effort with the, the ass her ass is all over this thing it's definitely a maximum cover come to life kind of uh, flopping around and cisco is definitely the soundtrack of this version of hell okay <laughs> thong, 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 thong. right yes I, I i get your joke <laughs> well played well played sir well played I try. so they did do the miniseries after all yeah that, that did come okay. out I, i'm assuming that it came out to completion but again i haven't read that that's too far in the future but i just wanted to show that there's more to celestine than what we've seen so far uh that they didn't just give up on her after she was killed i think alan moore did i don't think alan moore had much interest in doing anything else with her but i guess he didn't care if anybody else did and i guess you're going to get warren ellis some work oh yeah because apparently they did do a celestine and glory crossover yes uh, they did a glory one and they did an angela one. Oh, okay so she's got more going on but it, we haven't gotten there yet we won't for a while cool. for me this was definitely the weakest of the three miniseries we covered there's not a lot to celestine as a character and without seeing where the it's going it just seems like a lot of spinning wheels you just hanging out in head, hell getting tortured and there's yeah. other shit going on around her but I don't have any real context for it and within the context of the miniseries there's just not much there throw me I think it was a paycheck gig for Warren Ellis and it shows but it, it's not terrible it's fine it's, ser- it's serviceable I'm not a big Pat Lee guy but I did enjoy some of what he was doing in these stories it was, it was good for what it was
So on Facebook, we got appreciation from DeBeche and Derek William Crabb. On Twitter, it was 20th Century Geek Podcast, Adriano, Alex Chung, Baby Skeletor, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Comics 42, Doc Strange, Dr. Pop Culture BGSU, Ed Moore, Edward Huey, Fanholes Podcast, Green Lantern HG, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, Hulkling Hashtag Black Lives Matter, I Was Joe Crawford, Jason Roga, Jason Snicked Venable, Jeffrey Brown of Earth 1610, Jocktastico, Capucha, Antonio, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Cristados, Luke Giaconetti, Earth Destruction Directive, Marvel Universal Online, Michael Wagner, Mike has sent aliens to me, Nuka Carl Quantum, Odell Abner Dracula, Schlockpus Inc., Siskoid, Sue Kent Ant, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tim Price the Podcrasher, Under the Influence, Warlock Worlds, and Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast. Michael Wagner wrote, Would pay to have the Old Spine crew cover the bat insanity of Batman Odyssey. The reaction would be fire. And I, I, the problem is, I know that I can never get you guys to read that shit. Maybe fix what it. Is that it? you like Batman. Did you ever read Batman Odyssey? The fuck is that? And that's that Batman book that Neil Adams did about five to ten years ago. I'd read it. I'll check it out. Okay. You you do that and get back with me. <laughs> uh, Mike is in Aliens to me. I uh, said, uh, I liked the little I have seen of Tribe a lot. And that's part of the problem is hardly anybody got to read any Tribe since it had such a sporadic schedule from so many different publishers. So that's definitely... I think I have like the first three issues still. That's you were good about collecting independent comics publishers, or or better than maybe I gave you credit for at times. Because like, I don't think I, I, I don't I, think a lot I, of people made I it to have that tribe poster at my mom's house. Yeah, on the. So, what is on that poster anyway? Uh, woman with a huge ass bent over facing you or <laughs> some other woman in the background. I don't remember. So you, you still, you got your chief benefit out of it then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think many people made it to the third publisher. So that was, the fact you made it to th- a third issue is, is commendable. So Jeffrey Brown wrote, I will definitely be giving this a listen while I play Ultimate Alliance. Now this series of comics and characters have always been a curiosity to me. I really like Larry Strowman's art and character design for Tribe. Definitely could have been or could still be a kick-ass animated series if it would have come out in the 90s on MTV Liquid Television. In the run-up to actually finally releasing the episode, I'm trying to burn off as many episodes as possible that we still have recorded from before the COVID times to take advantage of our, our the collective nostalgia, uh, especially with ones like that one where the recording was shit. And it's part of the reason why it's been mothballed for so long is because the recording quality was bad, but it's nice to hear people talking when they're all in the same room together. But uh, before we released that, I, I went and I did character bios for a bunch of the different characters from Tribe and so I understand what the hell was going on a lot better now but what kills me is the first issue or two has a real Howard Chaykin quality where you feel like they're going to build to something that's more involved and then it kind of degenerates into a bunch of fights so even the potential that you saw in those early issues isn't built upon so it, it, the show it makes more sense by the time you get to the later issues but there's not as much to it and I, I wish they'd had the time to draw it out more actually and to make it more complex before it came down to the punch kick pal kind of stuff. Uh, so finally, Reverend Odell Abner Dracula wrote, ah, I had that man bat power record set once upon a time. Hey, Fix It, did you have any power records? I had a, a He-Man one. Mm-hmm. I had see, I had an Incredible Hulk one, uh, a Star Wars one, uh, maybe a Mickey Mouse one or a Disney one. Hmm. Okay. Those are the only ones I can remember. Because I remember we had our little record player and you you know, you put on the, what was it, a little, was it? Uh, a little 45? Yeah, like a little 45 and you, oh, it was Peter Pan. Matter of fact, I remember that. Was yeah, Peter, Peter Pan, Pan record. 
when it was a Peter Pan. Yeah. Um, if I remember you correctly, would just follow it was, along with the book as it talked to you. Yeah, it was a 45, but didn't it run at like 33 and a third so that you got more playtime out of it or something? Well, that how they, I don't like, remember. I just remember we yeah. started playing with it, trying to like make scratching sounds with it. <laughs> of course. So Odell continues, I followed Tribe based on the graphic innovations Strowman used on X Factor. Number one didn't seem to make much sense on its own. It took me forever to find number two, and I don't believe I've ever ever seen subsequent issues in all the years slash decades since. Strowman's Mr. Sinister was a triumph. I maintain nobody has drawn a better version before or since, and he included an image of uh, Mr. Sinister by Strowman that pretty much always comes to mind when I think about Mr. Sinister. I liked Mr. Sinister okay when he was in the Uncanny X-Men, but I don't think he became one of my favorite X-Men villains until he was in that X-Factor run, because I think Peter David and Strowman did such a good job of portraying the character, and I like the quality of androgyny, specifically that Strowman gave him, but I, I really dug that character un- in that run. That was one of my favorite aspects of their run together. And that's the end of Spawnometer, so moving on. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. There was an idea. To bring together a group of remarkable people. To see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could make the podcasts. That they never could. like to cross over, to feel so desperately that the comic is right, yet to fail all the same. Dread it. Run from it. March 2021 still arrives. Evacuate the network. Engage all defenses. And get this man a cold Mountain Dew. Ooh, cold Mountain Dew. I haven't tried one of those. Nah, nah, nah. Make it warm. Thank you. Fun isn't something one considers when podcasting an event. But this... (laughs) 
does put a smile on my face. You guys. Do you know it's the Merry Marvel Marching Society. We don't know where we're going, but we're on the way. A podcasting crossover mega event in the spirit of JL May. Coming in March 2021. Covering Marvel's fall crossover event, Axe. Of vengeance. A cabal of evil threatens the Avengers and the entire Marvel Universe. Doctor Doom, the Red Skull, Kingpin, Doctor Doom, Magneto, the Wizard, Doctor Doom, the Mandarin, and Doctor Doom have banded together to pit Earth's mightiest heroes against foes they have never faced before. An array of heroes face enemies they are totally unfamiliar with. But who is secretly pulling the vengeful cabal's strings? And can the Avengers take down the true mastermind before his hidden scheme succeeds? Featuring podcasts from Third Degree Burn, Back to the Bins, Avenger Spotlight, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Time Machine, Doom Speak, Van Holes Podcast, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Head Speaks, Into the Weird. Justice, not entirely dissimilar to Lightning, a Thunderbolts podcast, Longbox Crusade, Married with Comics, The Quantum Cast, Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, Rolled Spine podcasts, and Views from the Longbox. Marching its way to your favorite podcatchers and hosting sites in 2021. Act of Vengeance, a true story. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell!